This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, where you can meet like-minded people fighting for a new vision of aging. Find out more at carp.ca. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Christine Ross for Libby Snymer. We salute a Canadian Jewish agency celebrating a milestone anniversary of welcoming new immigrants and refugees to this country. And Canadian Blood Services is sounding the alarm about a critically low blood supply. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Australian scientists believe they are closer to unlocking the mystery of brain fog linked to long COVID. Their study finds the neurological symptoms are caused by amyloid clumps in the brain, similar to those that cause Alzheimer's. Brain fog has emerged as one of the most debilitating symptoms of long COVID, affecting thousands globally causing memory loss, confusion, dizziness, and headaches. Researchers say if there's a connection to amyloid clumps, there is 30 years of drug development into neurodegenerative disease, which can now be investigated for COVID-19. The UK plans to burn billions in wasted pandemic protective gear, and the public spending watchdog is not impressed and will investigate how the government spent $5 billion on PPE that has to be dumped because it's defective or does not meet standards. Officials say the costs and environmental impact of disposing of the excess and unusable items is unclear. The committee chair says this is perhaps the most shameful episode in the UK government's response to the pandemic. Canadian consumers don't appear eager to make the transition to electric vehicles, even as gas prices soar. Quebec and B.C. residents are open to switching to EVs, but both provinces are offering large discounts in addition to a federal rebate. Nationwide, however, half of Canadian consumers say they're unlikely to consider an electric vehicle, according to a new survey by J.D. Power Canada. More Canadians are interested in hybrid models rather than fully electric due to long Canadian winters and worries about performance. Different story in the U.S., 6 in 10 say they're very likely to consider going all electric. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky changed up his usual brown or olive green t-shirts this week and instead opted for a t-shirt designed by a Singapore teenager to address delegates at a security forum hosted by Singapore. The black shirt featured a drawing of a girl holding a bottle of spray paint poised on a stepladder against a backdrop of the Ukrainian flag. Evo So sent the t-shirt to Zelensky through the Ukrainian embassy in Singapore in the hopes that he would wear it in a photo or a video clip. Little did she expect to see him wear the shirt before the forum's 500 delegates. She owns a company called Daughters of Revolution. Worried that you thought that I abandoned you. And I'm here to tell you that I didn't abandon you at all. I just couldn't find you. 
A Korean War veteran has reunited with his first love after trying to reach her for 70 years. Dwayne Mann and Peggy Yamaguchi fell in love a lifetime ago in Japan and had planned to marry before Dwayne was shipped back to the U.S. They each married others and had children, but thanks to their children and to journalists from around the world, he finally got his chance and shared with his long-lost love that he kept photos of her in his wallet for years. Peggy even named her son Dwayne. A self-published romance novelist who once wrote an online essay called How to Murder Your Husband has been sentenced to life in prison for murdering her husband. 71-year-old Nancy Crampton Brophy has been convicted of second-degree murder and can apply for parole after 25 years. Prosecutors say she fatally shot Dan Brophy at work in Portland four years ago because she wanted his life insurance payout. Her essay was not permitted as trial evidence. I'm Christine Ross, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Canada's Jewish Immigrant Aid Services has been supporting refugees to this country for a remarkable 100 years. An anniversary marked this week right here at the Zoomerplex. Refugee Day tomorrow, June 20th, carries more significance this year as beleaguered Ukrainian refugees cross their nation's border to various destinations, including Canada. Ukraine has the fastest growing refugee crisis since the Second World War, and the numbers are growing. Whether it's this crisis or others, Jayas has welcomed newcomers forced to flee their homeland. Elise Herzig, herself the daughter of an immigrant, is executive director of Jewish Immigrant Aid Services Toronto. So we were founded to help refugees fleeing persecution a um, hundred years ago, and it's so sad and tragic that we've now reached a number of a hundred million refugees and displaced people around the world. There are times where big numbers are great. They're great when you look at uh, the age of Jaius, you're looking at a fundraising event, you're looking at people that come together for a celebration. But when you think about the fact that there are a hundred million people that have been forced to leave their homes for reasons of war, climate change, um, being part of a community that's not accepted, uh, and it's also Gay Pride Month, and it's a time where so many people, there are 73 countries today, it's still an offense, a criminal offense, to be publicly a member of the LGBTQI community. You have been in this role for over three years, and there's lots of work involved in organizing this 100th anniversary. But what else do you have to be bracing yourself for? So I've been in the role, as you said, for three years now, and I've already gone through three crises. We went through the pandemic, which changed a lot the way our immigrants were coming into the country or not coming in to the country. We had the Afghan crisis and now the Ukraine crisis. IRCC has 2 million applications and backlog that have to be processed. So right now what we're doing is in addition to all the great events and programs we're planning for our 100th, behind the scenes, we're rethinking the organization and how do we prepare ourselves for the next crisis so that we continue to be resilient, we can adapt to the changes but most importantly, that we can help clients where they're at with the supports that they need. 
How have things changed for your agency over this entire century in terms of welcoming newcomers to this country? Well, in 1922, we were created to really help Jews that were fleeing Eastern Europe, primarily the area of what we consider today Ukraine and Russia. And they were fleeing because of pogroms and virulent anti-Semitism. And it's quite shocking and sad that a hundred years later, we're helping people from that exact same community. But instead of being supported fully by the Jewish community, most of our funding today comes from the federal government. And we are helping both Jewish and non-Jewish Ukrainians. Um, what's really remarkable to me is that while we are the only Jaius today in the country, in 1922, when we were formed, our first location was in Montreal, and we were spread out eventually across the country. The war in Ukraine forced us or became a catalyst for us to almost take on that mantle of being that federal convener. And today, we are bringing together Jewish agencies across the country to help both Jewish and non-Jewish Ukrainians fleeing this war. And at the same time, Jaius is sitting at the federal, municipal, and provincial tables of government, which is also pretty remarkable. So what does Jaius do? It, it is a daunting task for newcomers and refugees to come to this country, having to flee their home, not knowing anyone in many, many circumstances, not knowing anyone, language often a barrier. What is the first thing that Jaius does to help these individuals and support them? We see the individual for who they're at and where they're coming from, what their dreams and aspirations are, and what do they need to be helped. Newcomers come to Canada taking many different pathways. Some come here as a visitor and eventually make their way to making Canada home. Some come on a work permit. permit. Some come as refugees, like the groups that we're seeing today um, from Syria, Eritrea, U um, Ukraine. But however they come, individuals need to be seen for who they are. And that's what Jaius does, and we help them. So it could be from providing um, language support, um, referrals to different agencies they need support from. We offer a suite of programs and services. But the most important thing we do is we start off with a settlement plan. And we find out what are their current needs, how do they want to connect to community, and then we help make those connections and help them thrive. When refugees come here, do they get a choice at all of where they would like to settle? Yes, unlike many of our families that came in the 1940s, which were told that they had to live in a certain part of Canada for, let's say, five years to work on a farm, today refugees can live anywhere they want in Canada. And one of the amazing things we do um, under the private sponsorship program is we match people with volunteers. And research has shown that when immigrants have people that help them when they come here, and especially connections to volunteers, it absolutely makes a difference in terms of their speed of being able to adapt to life and make community connections. There is a stigma attached um, to being a refugee or an immigrant. It has been there forever. But there's a new worry because police are reporting there has been a rise in um, hate crimes. And in fact, in Toronto, police report that last year alone, the Jewish community was targeted a quarter of all of the attacks, hate crime. Um, this This must be very worrisome for, for your agency. Anti-Semitism is of concern to the community and to our agency. Um, it's remarkable that when we work with our clients, many of whom are not Jewish, 
um, it changes their view of the Jewish community and of Jews. But one of the things that I'm really proud of, of Jairus, and there's so many, I can't keep track of everything, but in 2021, Jairus was awarded by the federal government an $800,000 grant to look at anti-racism through the lens of a newcomer. And it's pretty incredible when we were created to help refugees fleeing persecution because of their religious beliefs. And a hundred years later, we are looking at best-in-class practices that we can share across the settlement sector in the country so that we can help newcomers um, be better understood and we can use it to educate Canadians. That was Elise Herzig, Executive Director of Jaius Toronto. I'm Christine Ross, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, blood demand is back to pre-pandemic levels, but supply is critically low. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, offering members-only discounts that can save you thousands of dollars a year. Find out more at carp.ca. There's an urgent call for more blood donors as demand is back amid the smallest donor base in a decade. And officials are warning this is not sustainable. In fact, Canadian Blood Services needs to find another 100,000 donors over the next year. That's more than double the number that currently donate on a regular basis. Rachel Solomon is Development Manager for the Toronto area. I was a bit surprised to learn that just 400,000 Canadians give blood on a regular basis. That seems low. It is, yes. So we find that one in two Canadians are eligible to donate, but only one in 81 do, which is extremely low. So we need to get people coming out to donate. And that's why we're using right now the time to shine a light on our need for new donors. And we're really just asking people, come out if you haven't donated book your appointment to donate, or if you're a regular donor, bring one of your friends or your family members to come in and donate and just share your experience with those around you. Are you somewhat worried that we're in the heading into the summer months, which is traditionally a slow time for donations with people, you know, traveling and, and vacationing and so forth? Well, we are in a little bit of a precarious situation right now. As I mentioned, we have a very low donor base. It's the lowest that we've had in a decade. Um, and that has caused the decline of 25% in our blood inventory level. But we do have a small donor base of our regular donors that are coming out and supporting us. And they have been throughout the entire pandemic. But we do have the opportunity right now to turn the situation around. So now is very critical for us to get new donors in, to get more people coming out to donate. And we have been seeing a little bit of more people coming out, especially right now during National Blood Donor Week. Um, people are coming out and donating. And we're just really encouraging anybody that can donate to book their appointment and sign up and donate. What are the implications of a, a critically low supply of blood? Well, we do have a national inventory, so uh, we do keep an eye on that. Before patients are affected, we can turn this whole thing around, but that is only if people across Canada come and donate. So we need all blood types coming over the next week, next couple of weeks, sorry, and donating. So your organization was a bit hamstrung as well because during the pandemic, um, I'm sure that there were rules in place in terms of, of donations as well that probably brought the numbers down. 
Correct. We did see a little bit of a decrease in some numbers with um, some travel restrictions. So anybody that was outside of Canada in the past 14 days wasn't allowed to come donate. But we did lift that restriction recently. So we know a lot of people have been traveling lately. The restrictions have lifted. So everyone's taking their opportunity to get out of the country, book their vacations. We did lift those restrictions. So people can now come in um, after they've traveled and donate. Um, we do still have some COVID-19 protocols in place just to keep everybody safe. Um, and we do have mask mandates in place as well. Um, so everyone can feel very comfortable and safe while they come into the donor center. So the goal for this year then is 100,000 new donors? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So we, def- we definitely we need a lot of new donors coming in this year so that we can meet those patient needs. So anybody that is eligible, and we're just trying to ask people that haven't donated before, make this your turn to donate. And anybody that hasn't donated throughout the pandemic to come back in and donate. Rachel, what is the shelf life for um, blood? Yeah, so we do have a shorter shelf life for blood of only 42 days. So this is why we need people coming in all of the time to donate. So we need people this week, next week, and next month. That way we do always have a lovely supply of blood products for our Canadian patients to meet their needs. Rachel, thank you so much for this. Great, thank you. That was Rachel Solomon, Development Manager for the Toronto Area of Canadian Blood Services. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Christine Ross for Libby's Nimer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.